with a new podcast every day of the Premier League season. This is Football Social Daily. Take a deep breath and try to take in the turbulent ride we've just been on. Six days, six clubs and six games to go of the Premier League season. 666, the number of the devil. And it was a devilish, dastardly, devious plan from the Premier League's dirty dozen, which certainly left more sinners than winners. Those clubs may have repented to an extent, but the faith of their loyal followers has been thrown into some serious doubt. Now it's back to action on the pitch. There is top flight football to digest this weekend after a week of unpalatable news. European football, it doesn't feel right even saying those two simple words at the moment, but nonetheless, that's what's at stake as Chelsea and West Ham contest a massive London derby with both sides striving for a top four finish. If that's our genesis for today's podcast, Exodus comes in the form of a Carabao Cup final between Manchester City and Tottenham, whilst Leeds and Manchester United contest the latest chapter in their rivalry. We'll preview all the weekend's action here on Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast with a new episode every single day of the football season. And our podcast disciples today are the Daily Mail's Jack Gorn. Hello, Jack. Hello, mate. You're right. Can I just say before we start, Probably the best intro I've ever heard. <laughs> really? I'm putting that on my CV. <laughs> really good. Really good. Uh, and comedian and Manchester United fan Alex Boardman's here. How you doing, Alex? Yeah, really good. I don't know. I'll echo Jack's comments. I was I was amazed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, this, you got... this is a real podcast we're on. Oh, my God, we're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> serious stuff, of course. Uh, so this serious question to you, Alex. Are you going to heaven or hell? Uh <laughs> uh, hell probably <laughs> you were definitely at the hacienda in the 90s so there's yeah. no way you're going to heaven <laughs> no 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 that was actually the name of a, a nightclub in stockport heaven and hell and you could choose which entrance you went in it was uh <laughs> it, it should have been called hell and double hell to be honest it was awful yeah. purgatory and hell yeah uh, i'm niall mccall and thanks for downloading today's episode and i should say off the back of that intro I'm by no means a religious man, but it does actually say in the Bible that God hates a heart that devises wicked schemes and an athlete is not crowned unless he competes, according to the rules. That's Timothy 2.5, if anyone's interested. Uh, I have done my research. Uh, Let's talk about the football, the more important stuff uh, this weekend, of course. European Super League in the backdrop, and I'm sure it won't be in the rearview mirror for a long time yet. Plenty of fallout still to come from that. But let's try and focus on the football where we can this weekend, because I'm sure it will crop up in conversation, those European Super League proposals. And let's begin, for me, at what's the biggest game of the weekend. West Ham against Chelsea, 5 30 kickoff on Saturday. Both teams level on points in the Premier League standings with five games left after this one. It is currently fourth against fifth. Let's rewind to Monday night though, Jack, where to me Chelsea seemed hampered in their performance by the events that were occurring outside Stamford Bridge against Brighton. Obviously, there were protests from supporters. This was right in the thick of the European Super League news, having dropped on Sunday afternoon and the emotions were still high. We even had to see Petr Cech come outside Stamford Bridge and persuade some supporters who were barricading the entrance, practically, of Stamford Bridge to let the team coaches in so the game could go ahead. Some rather interesting scenes, to say the least. Do you think that did affect their performance against Brighton? And do you think we'll see something similar here? I knew, I, I was looking at the pictures, I actually knew quite a few people that, that had gone down there. <laughs> I texted a few mates the morning after going, oh, do you have a nice night last night? A busy one. Um, I thought... <laughs> I thought the kind of their performance almost uh, encapsulated how the country were feeling about what was going yeah. on. 
a little bit like it was a little bit numb mm. um and at that point the, the football didn't really feel like it kind of mattered a great a great deal mm. uh and it couldn't have come at a worse time for him really because they could have done with winning that game um so it just makes the West Ham fixture even more interesting because they've not got that you know they've not got that cushion that they had before um and yeah I just it would be fascinating I don't I can't really decide I keep going in between thinking it's going to be quite a cagey game because it, it's almost like I must not lose for both of them isn't it really um going between that and thinking it's going to be really open and expansive and West Ham are at their best when games are wide open but then Chelsea probably won't allow them to play like that. I'd... Yeah, it just feels at the moment that after the week's events and the news on Monday that you don't know what you're going to get. And and we know what we're going to get from Chelsea under Tuchel so far because the evidence is there for all to see. But it feels like, in a strange way, the events of last week and the week, sorry, the week we've just had have almost thrown into doubt what we're going to get from any of the big six sides, really. And that includes this weekend's League Cup final, which we'll come on to later. But all the early indications, Alex, are suggesting that Chelsea won't be chucked out of the Champions League because of their involvement in the Super League. It looks like they will be able to play their semi-final. Do you think that that might actually, therefore, pep the players back up again and and perk them back up again? Because it felt like on Monday against Brighton that the players themselves didn't really know what their future was and what what the future of the season looked like for them with these murmurs and rumours about what the punishments could be. Do you think that that might actually give them a a strange boost that, okay, we are going to stay in the Champions League, we've still got Champions League next season to fight for and we're going to try and pick ourselves back up again? Yes, I I definitely do because from from Sunday evening, uh, right through, I think even to the Liverpool game was was that Tuesday night? Um, there was still this huge hangover, this massive national, um, I was going to say support, was well, support to to get rid of this this entire ESL idea. Um, and I think I think Chelsea, I, do, I don't see it like uh, the same way as Jack does. I think Chelsea are, are far too strong. I think they've now had about six days to recover. The dust has very much settled on that. Their entire season, where they've got to the semi-final uh, of the Champions League, and that's that game's upcoming. I think that's the bigger distraction for them. I think by now they'll they'll know that look, we're still in that competition. Um, a win against West Ham, who were weakened as well because they've got a couple of their best players missing. Um, and I think the the good result against Manchester City in the semi-final the week before, and pretty much their Chelsea's form uh, since Tuchel took over. I just don't see any other winner in this one than than Chelsea, and I, I do hope West Ham can do it. But um, and I think if if West Ham beat them, I think they've got every chance then of finishing fourth. But I just, you know, with the exception of Lingard, who's on fire, who could just produce some magic, I just think Chelsea are technically. They, I can see them just winning one nil or or two nil, and they'll just absolutely snuff out West Ham. So yeah, sadly, sadly, I think Chelsea will will win this one. Be interesting to see how many changes he makes. Really, Tuchel. Yeah, I think. I mean, you look at Chelsea. Just Chelsea's forward options. They've got three strikers to pick from. So I don't think rotating for them will be as big a problem, especially given the fact West Ham are missing uh, Craig Dawson at centre half because he got uh, sent off against Newcastle, um, and also Declan Rice, who really is vital to that team. So. Chelsea can, you know, they can start with Werner, let's say, and then they can can always throw Giroud on if required. 
it's I just think Chelsea have got way too much um, for West Ham. Interestingly enough, this game doesn't feel like do or die stuff for West Ham personally because if you look at their fixtures. They've got Burnley, Everton, Brighton, West Brom, Southampton coming up. So some would argue they've done the hard work. But is this do our die stuff, Jack, in the sense that this sort of top four opportunity very, very rarely comes around for a side like West Ham United? Is this an opportunity that they have to take or they'll be left forever wondering? Uh, yeah, well, you'd have to say so, wouldn't you? I mean, there's only um, there's only been Leicester that's been able to penetrate the, the kind of traditional top six Um properly over the mm. last 10 years um, so I think who was before that Everton I guess were the only ones before that that really gave it a proper go mm. Tottenham yeah Tottenham, I suppose I yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's quite mad to say given the given the week um, <laughs> yeah I think they've uh, they'll kick them they will kick themselves wouldn't they if they if if they didn't just go that, that extra step and just complete the job but the problem they've got is Chelsea kind of keep Getting results and um, you can't, you can never discount Liverpool. Um, and it, th- mm. those those games that West Ham do have, they do look favourable um, on paper. But you know they burn they burn the games away, and Burnley need a result, and they do a result, and Everton's not easy, and Brighton and West Brom are both away. So it's like I don't know, it's very, and it doesn't really matter who you play at this stage of the season either, because there are so many other factors that come into play um mm. unfortunately West Ham are the, one of those teams that you would expect if um push came to shove and it was really tight last couple of games then maybe they wouldn't be able to get themselves over the line because teams around them have got more experience mm. um in these nip and tuck situations I think this game perfectly encapsulates the week we've just had a side that probably in the next 20 years might never get close to a top four finish against the side who due to the ownership and the backing they've had from Roman Abramovich, have broken into what is now considered a traditional top four. I just think it's a really interesting situation that this is the fixture that provides top billing this weekend, the first weekend of Premier League action after the Super League news broke. West Ham against Chelsea in a battle for the top four. Couldn't make it up, really. 5.30 Saturday, that one kicks off at the London Stadium. Time to move on to... A rivalry, not a derby. Leeds United versus Manchester United. This one kicks off at 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon. I call it a rivalry, but I say that as a Portsmouth fan, very much from the south, Alex. You're a Manchester United supporter. The rivalry between Leeds United and Manchester United, just how big is it, perhaps, for some people listening that aren't quite so sure? Well, for some people... So I'm I'm 48, which for a lot of people listening will make me, like, essentially I'm your dad's age. Um, <laughs> now, even for me, there's a sort of... So Leeds is a big Leeds is a big rivalry, but Liverpool was always the big one for me. Mm. I think the, the, United, the Man United-Leeds United rivalry, bearing in mind it's a huge Lancashire-Yorkshire Battle of the Roses style rivalry. Yeah. Um, mainly stems from the mid to late 60s right through to the 70s, especially the 70s. So even by the time I'm starting to go to football in, in the 80s, it was still a very, very fierce rivalry. Um, Leeds fans especially were, were quite notorious, very notorious in the 70s. But it died down a little because Leeds um, weren't in the top fight for about a, a, probably a good 15 years. Mm. So... The rivalry sort of, it's still there, it still exists. Um, I'm sure that, um, I seem to remember that uh, there was a, uh, oh, was it a Beckford goal 
about yeah. seven or eight years ago in, in the, the FA, FA Cup, Cup mm. the one nil, and um, so and the Leeds fans that day were absolutely, you know, we're back. This is our, but there was still there was still a, a, a full division down. So it is a very fierce rivalry, um, mm. but it, it's one of those that going back 30 40 years it was much more fierce mm. it's it's not on a part with the with the united and liverpool rivalry anymore i don't think i'd, I'd still put it as second i'd really? still put them as our second most hated team but against above man city much much yeah definitely because for, for lots of the same reasons because for it's only the last sort of eight or nine years that city have been any good mm. um so the city were never a, a threat for all the years of our success they weren't a big threat and they'd, they'd often come and beat beat us when they were mm. even in the same division as us um but it leads i don't know this there is there's an extra needle with leads but it's not as big as the liverpool rivalry which is pure hatred yeah it kind of forms the holy trinity of manchester united rivalries doesn't it liverpool manchester city leeds united can we use these sorts of games though jack the likes of leeds against manchester united as examples to those again who perhaps weren't quite aware as to why football in this country is culturally different to anywhere else in the world. I mean, every other I'm footballing country... I'm quite wary country, of saying that, though. You think so? Because every other footballing uh, yeah. country doesn't have the, the pyramid system and, and the clubs that, that run so deep down. You know, you're talking four professional divisions and, and even the National League now is quite quite professional as well in the main. So, I don't know. What's your take on it then in, in that case? Uh, well, my th- take on it was... Uh, it did kind of make me laugh slightly that United... Um, put out on their website yesterday or the day before quotes from Fred where he called it the English Classico <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a little bit of a stretch I mean I understand that the rivalry is um, is a big one um, and like Alex was saying that I mean Leeds fans that I know still still talk about that Beckford goal when I think they were in League One at the time weren't they and Simon Grayson was manager yeah. um, so I I think it, it I think it's always been a bigger rivalry for Leeds than, than than Man United, without kind of any allegiance to either club. Just from the outside looking in, that's what it it seems like to me. Does it kind of prove, or does it show that effectively what you're asking me is that ours is a is a is a better pyramid and it's superior to other countries? And I'm always kind of <sighs> reticent to kind of say that or agree with that because everyone every country kind of does things differently. Um, like say, look, look at the look at the big clubs in Spain. They're able to they're able to play their kids in the in the professional divisions lower down, which mean they and they say that is that proves that they're able to develop their younger players better than clubs are over here. Whereas we say we've got four professional leagues, effectively a fifth, given the money that's in the national league at the moment. And that makes up the tapestry of English football. I don't think there's a right or way, wrong kind of answer. Um, what the Super League would do would kind of eviscerate this, this passion um, away from an English game that almost trades solely on emotion. And that would be the sad thing. Yeah, it, it would. And do you know, I don't know whether it's a good example to draw. Uh, maybe you, Alex, would be able to give more information or shed more light on this but the fact that as you say Leeds weren't in the Premier League for 16 years and when did the ownership of Manchester United come in was it 2005 five so, 16 years ago yeah, yeah. I, I guess this is a rivalry that they've never really truly experienced in a Premier League contest whereas in years gone by it was one of the bigger games on the calendar yeah 
Yeah, certainly. And I, I totally agree with Jack's point. Well, I agree with most of what Jack said there. I think it is a bigger rivalry from the Leeds end to the United end uh, for people my age and below. I, I think it's probably the same thing with City. I think City hate United a lot more than United hate City, whereas with Liverpool it feels a bit equal. Mm. Um, and also, I, I also, I mean, if you just look at the nearest rival, the nearest like Celtic Rangers, or if Rangers were to go and play Hibs, there's a lot of other stuff going on there. Or you look at any game in Argentina or Brazil, yeah. and then you look at all the Italian rivalries and the Spanish rivalries, and I, I don't know much about French football. Um, I think the Dutch league, I, I just think there's rivalries wherever. I think that's one of the great things about football. Mm. And I think we, I'm always a bit like Jack, wary to get bogged down with the, uh, isn't the Premier League great? Aren't, aren't, aren't we great in England? I think mm. it's I think it's good and slightly different everywhere. And um, I, I don't think there is a right or wrong. And I'm certain there's a, there's a lot more passionate derbies, even if United were allowed to, fans were allowed to go to Leeds uh, on Sunday. Yeah. There's, you know, imagine if you were in in Brazil or you're you're in you're in Rio watching watching one of those games or you're in Argentina watching River Plate or something. You, that is a rivalry where the yeah. fans are there about eight hours before the game. And it's like people are being <laughs> killed the outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, so uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be very wary about that. And what mm. was the other question you asked? I'm sorry, I got very distracted. Well, it, I don't think that really. I think you've covered it off. I was just yeah. going to say, um, to be honest, you know, if we're worried about Liverpool th- fans throwing a bottle through the window of the Real yeah, Madrid exactly. coach, then uh, I think yeah, certainly there'll be some eyebrows raised at a River Plate game. And it's interesting yeah. you mentioned that club actually, because Edinson Cavani at Manchester United has been rumoured to uh, possibly return to South America in the summer after just a season at Old Trafford. There's been reports that he is keen to head back to uh, South America and play for Boca. But now, more recently, reports have said, not reports, but rumours have surfaced that he could be in line for a new Manchester United contract. Would you welcome that? Uh, Have you enjoyed Edinson Cavani in United colours? Very, very much, especially given Martial's been really poor this year. And it feels like he's, Cavani's been one of the the real last centre-forwards we had. And it was something at United that you always used to used to see from like when I first started watching from like say even Joe Jordan he was a big traditional number nine and then you got Frank Stapleton mm-hmm. and you'd got Norman Whiteside playing up there, and we always had a great forward and Martial's not that kind of centre forward. Ibrahimovic came in did it for a year but he was not at his absolute best. Um, it's a, he's been a joy to watch Cavani and I've not seen him live yet and I really hope to do i wouldn't blame him for going back um to south america because he's been in lockdown for a full season in a different country and he's i don't think his family his full family were not allowed to come over and and there was the racism ban as well alex well the other thing yeah i was gonna say the other thing with the kind of cultural uh issues with the the footballers i mean he was absolutely livid about the football association and you couldn't blame you wouldn't blame him, would you? No, no, because the the entire uh, nation of Uruguay got behind him and went, "This is categorically not what you think it means." And yet the FA still, hmm. like in in their infinite wisdom, go, "Oh no, no, we know what what your culture means when it says a, a particular word." Um, so I I do hope he stays. I wonder. I also wonder if he does stay and. United do need another forward, and they need one of the big. If, we, if they're going to, they, I think they're close to a title challenge. I think they're really quite close. And a signing like Highland or Kane would indicate yeah. 
that they are deadly serious because I still don't think they've been. I, I think this year Solskjaer's almost overachieved with what he was supposedly getting in the summer and what he said, oh, look, we want Sancho and we want Declan Rice and we want X, Y, Z. And they basically re-signed Henderson, uh, got Van der Beek, who was like the banner signing that it looks pretty clear that Solskjaer never wanted in the first place. And then Cavani came in absolutely last minute on a free. So um, I'd, I hope he stays because I'd really like to see him live because I think he'd be one of those players that you miss on telly. I think you miss everything that he does. Yeah, you don't see the movement, do you? That's the, that's the big, no. that's the wonder about him, isn't it? Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk as well about his impact on Mason Greenwood as well. Someone so experienced like Cavani mm. helping someone so young and, and, and still learning his trade, Mason Greenwood, even though he's kind of had a really great introduction to first-team life at Manchester United. Edinson Cavani, eight Premier League goals this season, five headers. So I think we know that yeah. the strengths that he possesses. Um, as for Leeds United, Jack, they've had a good season. There's no two ways about it. Obviously, Marcelo Bielsa works in the way that he works. We don't know if he's going to stay next season because he likes to sign a contract somewhat weeks before the start of a new season. And he, he likes to wait until the end of the old campaign before committing to the next one. Um, presuming that he is going to stay because that's what everything seems to be pointing towards. Does it really matter how they end the season now? It seems like job done for Leeds United. Obviously, they'll want to end by winning as many games as possible, but it, I suppose they've kind of, they can kick back now a little bit because they've done what they've set out to do, which is stay up. Yeah, they could, yeah, they could kick back. I think the players are going to want to finish as high as possible because that means they earn more money and bonuses, um, which mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that is something that's changed over the last 10 years that, the idea that teams coming up from the Premier League get a big bonus pot purely for staying in the Premier League doesn't really exist anymore, and it's it's an incremental thing on on depending on what position you finish or you finish between tenth and thirteenth or thirteenth and sixteenth or whatever. So they're actually playing for that, which means they'll probably get performances right until the end. You would have thought, um, and they've been. I mean, they've been mm. they've been great last few weeks, really, really good. I mean. They were excellent. I, I saw them at City uh, what feels like a lifetime ago, but presumably only about a fortnight ago. Um, and they like defended, just, <laughs> they were superb. I mean, they, they played in a way that teams have figured out that is the way you beat City, but you still got to be able to do it, which is so difficult, particularly with 10 men. And it's the, everything about it was just really mm. full, it's full-blooded. And like kind of going back to what we said about English football before, they are the the way they want to play is the epitome of what any supporter of any club up and down the country they that's they want their players to play the way Leeds do, which is like when they got mm. battered by United earlier in the season, uh, and people like Gary Neville were praising them for the way they played, and uh, then other people were kind of criticising Neville that oh you wouldn't you know you wouldn't say this about West Brom if they if they got tanked at Old Trafford, but they do. They've just given the Premier League a little bit of life that probably was unexpected this year and it should be applauded. So whether they finished 17th or they finished 8th, it doesn't really matter because they've kind of, they've they've given something extra, um, which has been, it's just been fascinating to watch them. Yeah, definitely. And they've not got Cooper, Rafinha, well, they don't have Cooper for certain because uh, I think he's suspended. And then Rafinha and Rodrigo are doubts for the game against Manchester United. So maybe a slightly depleted Leeds side. But I'm in agreement with you there, Jack. I don't think we'll see a repeat of the 
eight-goal thriller that we saw at Old Trafford earlier on in the season. Leeds against Manchester United, two o'clock kickoff on Sunday. Let's talk about Liverpool now. They take on Newcastle United, 12.30 Saturday. Another one of those sides still hunting for a top-four finish. They were in the thick of it earlier this week when the European Super League news broke. Jurgen Klopp very, very prickly, Jack, uh, when coming out and asked questions about the situation regarding the Super League. Did that come as much of a surprise to you? And do you think we could see the relationship that the Liverpool fans have had fractured with the ownership and the board affect performance on the pitch? Uh, not sure it'll affect performance on the pitch. I thought Klopp was actually, on Monday night, I thought Klopp was quite good initially. He had his, like, his message mm. was, I feel exactly the same way as I, do, as I did do two years ago when I last spoke about it. So look at my quotes from there because it's not changed, which I thought was quite a diplomatic way of going about the issue because effectively mm. he stood there in a flash interview with Sky before a match when his coach has been booed on the way in, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and they're asking him to go against his, the guys who pay his wages, which is like yeah. people haven't really realised that this week, that all these managers that have been wheeled out in front of us, they're in impossible positions. Like you look at Thomas Tuchel mm. been in his job two minutes, being asked about Chelsea's stance on the Super League. You'd like Pep's best mates with the majority of the board at City, and he's having to say yep. what what he believes. But maybe that's kind of jarring. Klopp, it's just his idea of football is just so far removed from John Henry's that he was in an impossible. I thought it was mm. an impossible situation, and it was just a bit of a shame that he got bogged down in other things mm. that night. When he was kind of like picking fights with Neville, and uh, I think he was yeah, that's about what the that's what disappointed me. But I, I really... thought, but I thought the big thing about that the, the interviews were he went in his message going in was I don't agree with it, and this is what I said two years ago, and everything else is just like kind of background noise. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I understand that, but also I've said this on the podcast a couple of times already this week that Jurgen Klopp needs to understand that as manager of Liverpool Football Club, he is the face of that club regardless of whether he likes the questions or not and dislikes the criticism and all that, he should expect to get some questions about the European Super League. And I'm sure he did. And I'm sure there was a briefing with the press officer and all the rest of it. But it just felt like you say, Jack, he didn't need to get bogged down into those conversations about, you know, you'll never walk alone being used by Gary Neville in a heated rant on Sky Sports. And it just felt like he was defending what he didn't need to defend. I think it was maybe what you say, tribal mentality and all the rest of it uh, of something you're passionate about trying to defend the cause. And, you know, he didn't said he didn't think it was fair for Neville to use. You'll never walk alone against Liverpool in that sense. But at the end of the day, even though it's not the wishes of the club and the lifeblood of the club, which is the supporters, it's got the club logo on it. He wears the Liverpool crest on his chest. And unfortunately he's going to get drawn into these situations. And, it is a shame that you know everything's so disjointed between what we see on the pitch and then what we see at executive level. But that's just the game these days. But this is the problem. Like on on Tuesday, I was saying to the lads before we, we before we did Pep, I was like, I don't want to talk to Pep today. I want to talk to Ferran Soriano. Yeah. Mm. And like the guys at Chelsea would have wanted to speak to Marina, yeah. and United would have wanted to speak to Ed Woodward, etc., etc. Yeah. But the executives... having to talk to these guys yeah. who like it's nothing to do with them. None of the money like Pep didn't know till. Sunday, I think. I don't think they told him till Sunday. Yeah, just before. Mm. They'd already signed it. Yeah. So I just, like, what like, what do you do? I mean, the the, the uh, disappointing thing from Klopp's thing on Monday was 
he had this line after the game where he was moaning about something that Martin Samuel had written on the Daily Mail's website, right. um, which he mentioned in on the telly and then mentioned in his press conference as well. That was only published at seven o'clock that night. So I don't know when he's had time to read that because <laughs> they kicked off at eight. Someone's uh, someone said something. I think maybe you could be a little bit lost in translation there, perhaps. Um, mm. But Liverpool against Newcastle this weekend. Let's bring it back to the game and let's focus on Newcastle now, Alex. They'll feel that a win all but keeps them up in the Premier League this season. And we can talk about Klopp, but also Newcastle fans have had issues with their ownership for a long, long time. Uh, but at the moment, their issues tend to be with the manager, Steve Bruce. Do you think Steve Bruce will still be at Newcastle next season if this ownership saga isn't solved by then? We don't need to go into the nuts and bolts of Mike Ashley and the deal involving the Saudis, which collapsed, and the arbitration and the Premier League involved. We don't need to go into all of that. I just suppose from a general perspective, the fans don't like Steve Bruce. They don't want him there. But let's just say they stay up and Mike Ashley is still the the owner of Newcastle by the time next season starts. Can you still see Steve Bruce being the, being the manager? A hundred percent, purely for the reason who else would do it with that entire situation with Ashley. Also, the way that Newcastle played really well when the they scored three against West Ham. Sam Maxim was absolutely outstanding, and he's been missing for half the season. It feels like I can't remember. I think he he'd not played for a good ten, twelve games mm. or something. COVID really took its toll on him. Yeah, he'd got long COVID, hadn't he? And he just couldn't run, and he was feeling really fatigued, and he looked like an absolutely he's at points this season he's looked like a world beater um so you've got him to one extreme you've also got wilson who's who's back who was at the start of the season absolutely exactly what newcastle needed just that sort of tap it in six yard box he's giving the ball he's going to score with one touch just knows where the goal is so if newcastle were to like the next what's left newcastle played 32 games so six games left if newcastle win the vast majority of those games and win them quite well. Um, I think the fans will sort of back off Bruce a little bit because I've got a few friends from Newcastle and some of whom, they don't like Bruce. They think he's bad in press conferences. They think he picks the wrong team. Joe Winton is like the absolute ultimate Titanic of a player. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, even he's scored a couple in the last few games. So if... Whereas some of the others have been a little bit more realistic and look, he's got Ashley that's hampering him. Players don't want to, to go there. This is kind of the best he could do. Plus, we've missed our two best forward players for a good part of the season. Um, and then, you know, we talk about Leeds having a, a great season. A couple more wins for Newcastle and they'd be almost right mm. up there with Villa and Leeds in the middle of the table, Wolves. So, um, yeah, I don't, I just don't see anybody. Who's going to go? Mourinho's free. Who else is free? <laughs> Mourinho won't go, will he, to, to Newcastle? So I don't I don't know who's gonna go. Who's gonna go? It's a good point and one that Graham Potter. Well well maybe. Maybe. But again I think that the relationship Potter has with Paul Barber, the chief executive, and the board at Brighton is a strong one. And I think Alex's point is good. You know, who is gonna go to Newcastle and you know, to pick up that baton of maybe a bit of miscommunication there at board level, because by all accounts, it seems like, if I remember rightly, that Rafa Benitez was a bit concerned over broken promises and stuff like that, and that was kind of why his Newcastle tenure came to an end. Anyway, the Toon travels to Liverpool at 12.30 Saturday for their Premier League fixture. Still three more top flight games to talk about, and also a League Cup final. We'll do it next here on Football Social Daily. <laughs> Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.
This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Make sure you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss another episode. Again, brand new shows every single day of the football season. Alongside me, we've got Alex Boardman and Jack Gorn, and time to talk about the Blades against Brighton. Sheffield United versus Albion takes place 8pm Saturday. Sheffield United already down. Jack, do you think we'll see him play with more freedom, or that will they still be dispirited? It's often hard to tell after a side goes down, but it's something that everyone always says. Every match preview you read, every news outlet you go to, it says, oh, you know, the Blades might be able to play with a bit more freedom now that the pressure's released that they've gone down. Uh, is this another one of those football cliches, or does it hold some weight? I don't know, because I guess you don't play with the fear, do you? I mean, Hackenbottom's been trying to play, or trying to implement a, a style of play that's kind of base a little bit more on possession and it seems like he's trying to prep them for next year a little bit. Right. Um I mean they've just looked the players just looked beaten, haven't they, for three or four months. I remember there was a interview with mm. uh Billy Sharp that the the club put out themselves after they got tonked at Leicester. I can't remember what the score was, but they got absolutely battered. Um and it was about a five, six minute interview that Sharp had done. And he just looked, it looked like he was about to burst into tears, to be honest. Uh, it was really sad to watch. Mm. Um, but it felt like they'd just given up a little bit. Um, which you don't kind of envy Heckingbottom having to just be there for <laughs> for the last two months of the season and not really kind of, does he's not, yeah, I mean, he's not going to be managing next almost. year, is he? Uh, so it's like yeah. you're just treading water. So I don't really know. It's a strange place. I mean, someone told me the other week that every single one of those players is up for sale in the summer. Wow. So Sheffield United could look like a completely different mm. club next year, which means anything they're doing at the moment it just feels moot. Mm. Yes, it's be been a damaging season. He's, he's going to buy them. He's going to buy any of those players. Really? Oh, well, Sander, I, he, he's the, the only, only one, one isn't he? Got. Sanderberg. Yeah, but then he's mm. he's become a better player for being injured, hasn't he? Yeah, because he's not been able to compete in that team, which are getting tonked yeah. every week. And although they've managed yeah. to avoid Derby's record low points total of 11 from 2009, they still might end the season with the most defeats in a Premier League season ever. So still a little bit of pride to play for for Sheffield United. From a Brighton perspective, we've spoken about Graham Potter. We've praised Graham Potter and we've praised Brighton on this podcast. They've often played well on the whole this season, Alex. But have they? Have they really? Is mm. it possible to play well and be 16th it kind of goes back to the chat we were having when we were talking about Manchester United against Leeds United when Jack's dead right you know Leeds got a pasting off Manchester United and yet some people were praising the way that they were so brave in how they played is it possible to be a good side to watch and play good football and be 16th it seems like the two things are almost like an oxymoron I suppose you could say yeah this should be but this kind of it's almost the the exact opposite of Southampton especially last season whereas Southampton last year were kind of an average team to watch but they've got Danny Ings who just scored it seemed he scored at least a goal every game and he definitely kept them up and he, he met, everyone's going Southampton great well done um, Brighton are, are the opposite whereas they do lots of really nice things um, they've got quite a few players playing really really well Lallana seems to be absolutely revitalised he was great I thought against Chelsea in a really bad game could have scored the you know one of one of Brighton's centre forwards, Danny Welbeck, who's never been that prolific um, a goal scorer, and I think it's they just have a problem. P- 
putting the ball in the net and everything else they do is really good. Now, if they were to, we just talked about Callum Wilson. If Callum Wilson was at Brighton, you could see Brighton having a, at least 15 more points this season. I just think they're a, they're a nice side to watch. They're entertaining. They can be difficult to play as well because they've got a few players who put it about a bit. So I I do think I, I can understand when people say, oh, yeah, they, they, are, they are a decent side, but... Um, I don't know. I, I quite like them. I've, I've got a bit of a soft spot for them because maybe just because they try and play football. Alex, Alex is completely right in the sense that they're really, really good in the middle third and not so good in either of the boxes. And that's that's what costs money when they've not spent the money. Mm-hmm. If, they, if, if they spend money on a striker or they spend money on a, a, a real top centre-half, then... They're a completely different team. That's interesting because I think they got some good centre halves, you know. Um, well, they have got a good centre halves, but someone like that just like leads leads the team. I see, I see. Because I mean, I like um, White, but he's suspended for this game. Um, I also like Webster actually, um, and Matt Clark as well. They've got on loan down at Derby another player that I, I've seen at close quarters at Portsmouth and as a left-footed centre half, I think he's a a really useful option. I think defensively they've got some good players, but it does feel like up front, like you say, Jack, is where they need to probably dip their hands into the pockets and and try and spend because Mope started off all right when he signed, but he's completely kind of fallen off a cliff in terms of goal-scoring form. Danny Welbeck, I mean, can he stay fit for more than a month at a time? I mean, that's an issue in itself. So, yeah, definitely uh, problems there. Also, Tariq Lamptey and Solly March won't be available for Brighton. What should their ambitions be next season then, Jack? I mean, my first thoughts would be to avoid a relegation battle, but is that realistic? Uh, no, it's just the same again, just staying in the league, which kind of, which kind of brings us back to the Super League argument, really, in that everyone's going, oh... Oh, Premier League is just such a, a wonderful spectacle. It's not. It's crap. There's like 14 teams, 13 mm, teams in the league that just want to stay in the league, and it's there's mm. and there are loads and loads of reasons of that for that. And the top six are a massive problem with the the, the kind of the money they're able to spend, and they, they've just broken away from the rest of them. And I completely get that. But this idea that the Premier League is like the the best league in the world, it's just nonsense because there are of people or teams that are happy to be there and Brighton Brighton are going to be the same and it'll be success in five years time if Brighton are still doing the same thing it's like Bournemouth isn't it it's very similar well, Burnley mean, yeah. it's all the yeah in terms of South Coast clubs as well Brighton are, I mean Southampton and Portsmouth are the two biggest clubs on the South Coast there's no there's no question about that um, but then you see teams like Bournemouth and Brighton that have managed to, to rise up through the leagues and compete in the Premier League for a number of years, obviously Bournemouth are down now, but you just think, I mean, what's the ambition for them? What, what are the supporters thinking? Oh, we get to go to Liverpool and Man United every year, which is great. But once you've done it, like three or four seasons in a row, is that gloss Is that gloss still there? I mean, then you're thinking about, oh, I wish we had a good cup run this season. Mm. But then the focus, as you say, Jack, is on staying in the league. So you play a weekend side in the cup and it's just an endless cycle. And you just think, ah, what's going to get the juices flowing? Anyway, Sheffield United against Brighton, 8pm Saturday. Villa against West Brom, a Midlands derby-ish, I suppose. I don't know, really. I shouldn't really speak out. Yeah, definitely. You think so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can can get from Villa Park to the Hawthorns within about (laughs) 25 minutes on a train. I can see, I can Close see Villa, I can see uh, the Hawthorns from the M6 when I'm driving uh, through Birmingham. So I suppose that kind of counts, seeing as you know that it's not far away. Uh, 7 p.m. Sunday, this one starts. A uh, West Brom down, 
Jack? Are they resigned to their fate already after the Leicester defeat? I mean, it's not impossible that they get out of it. I mean, they'll be hoping that Sheffield United do beat Brighton in the game we've just talked about. But after that 3-0 loss at the King Power, it does feel like that's game over for them. Yeah, I was kind of looking at the table before we came on. It feels like the three that are there now are going to stay there. I, yeah. just, I can't really... I, I mean, Burnley are in such awful form, but I just can't see Fulham and West Brom winning enough games to make up six and nine points. I just mm. Is it like... Is that too much? Yeah, definitely. It's Burnley have got a game in hand on, on Fulham as well. So I think Fulham are pretty much gone. I heard Sam Allardyce on the radio before, um, and it's the first time I've ever heard him at this stage of the season just sounding absolutely beaten. He was blaming the league. I can sympathise <laughs> with him, but he was blaming the league, saying, look, the fixtures are coming too thick and fast. We've not got the players. We need to look at ourselves and make ourselves a bit better, which he's been saying for the last 10 games. But he was also saying, you've got to give us a chance and give us more than you know three or four days recovery between games. So, um, I, I mean, I've got absolutely no sympathy for our dad because he's played such abysmal football for so long. Uh, and then the whole England debacle as well that, you know, good riddance to him. But he will probably just walk away from West Ham and they'll they'll go down and he'll be like, well, that's me done. I might see you. Yeah. So, uh feel sorry for West Brom. Well, he's got the caveat, hasn't he, of a strange season. And I think that when people do throw that bone at him saying, you know, oh, you've been relegated, it's on your CV, he can turn around and go, oh, well, well these were the permeating circumstances. Mm. Anyway, Aston Villa are without Jack Grealish again. Um, they struggled without him before, Jack. Any chance here, do you think, for Dean Smith to try and find the answer to his absence? Because it felt like without him a few weeks ago, they, they did really struggle. Yeah, they, they just don't have that... Um... Without, I think we said the other week, then we was like talking about um, how players have stepped up in his absence on like one-off occasions. But when they don't have him, they just don't have that control of the ball, and they're not able to keep the ball quite as much. Um, which it kind of obviously did, did the did the game on on Wednesday night, and he just felt like they just couldn't they could keep hold of the ball long enough just to take a breather, which against the top teams is a problem without Grealish. But, I mean, having said that, this weekend, they should have enough to beat to beat West Brom without him. Um, and if they can't, actually, that'd be quite... That, they'd probably look at that as quite a little bit of a worry ahead of next season if he if he does go, because I think he might go this summer. Um, and it's... I mean, there's not that many teams, other that one guy is, like, the proper talisman and everything that goes through him. There's not too many through the division but Grealish he's just, his importance is just so yeah. vast to them. the only other one would be Zaha um, but yeah. then you're looking at Palace, sort of dangerous yeah. territory aren't you really like if you look how abject Crystal Palace are without Wilfred Zaha on the side I mean they seem to have addressed that a little bit more recently but that is a huge issue for Roy Hodgson and Crystal Palace that without him they just aren't the same team and you know I do think that Jack Grealish is that pivotal to Aston Villa that you're getting into similar territory there yeah absolutely definitely I did notice um, Barkley came on uh, midweek so it was looking at the early parts of the season the sort of Grealish and Barkley and McGinn working as a three and Watkins up front there were there were signs where it looked like Mm. a bit like Everton early on where you you know you take 10 games as just a little snapshot and go oh, there's, there's a really good side here. And I thought that with Villa, um, but it just hasn't panned out like that over the course of the season. Um, 
mainly because of Grealish's no. injury. He is he's really good. Last year he kind of I remember when they came up and I was looking at him in the Championship. I thought, oh, he's a, he's a good player, but I don't think he'll do it to that level in the Premiership. And he did. And at the end of last season, thinking, well, he won't be able to do it again, or it'll be a lot more difficult for him to do it again. And when he's been fit, he has done it again. He he is a really good player. Mm. I can see a lot of teams wanting him, and I can see him probably. I know it's his boyhood club and stuff, but you know they yeah. they're a kind of dead duck, aren't they? Really, Villa at the minute, and they're not. They're just not good enough. He's got a charm about him, Jack Grealish, which is interesting because he does often find himself in a little bit of trouble. Mm. Um, not not yeah. in terms of on the pitch. Got terrible, terrible gear. Though, <laughs> yeah. You reckon? I don't really see that much. Did you see that? No, what, is he, what do you have on? Oh, God. It, it was the Burberry scarf. It <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, goodness me. Um, I'll have to have a little Google to see what Jack, uh, Jack Grealish's club is like. Um, but yeah, I just feel like he's got the lovable rogue about him, Jack Grealish. I mean, he had an issue. Uh, he's had a few off-field issues, let's yeah. just say. Um, and they don't seem to be as accentuated let's just say as someone like James Madison who seems to get a little bit more stick in the press than uh, than Jack Grealish does I'm not sure why that is maybe it's just because yeah like you say he's he's quite laid back he's got the sort of the, the cheekiness about him I suppose I don't know I am purely speaking from opinion here of course anyway Villa against West Brom 7pm Sunday final Premier League game we're going to talk about before we focus on the Carabao Cup final is Wolves against Burnley Burnley have lost the last three they're in more danger than it might seem so this is an important game for them I wanted to focus not so much on the actual game, but more on the manager of Wolves, Nuno Espirito Santo. He's being suggested by some, Jack, for the Spurs job next season, should Ryan Mason uh, not end up taking that on for the next campaign. Do you think he'd be a good fit? And would he leave Wolves if that opportunity came up? Well, without kind of, so don't call it Wolves, but just looking from the outside in, you think, well, has he taken Wolves as far as he can? Is he going to get the money to strengthen on the players that he wants rather than what other people might want um, at the club? Because obviously the George Mendes is heavily involved at, at that football club. He's been... I think it was the start of the season. He, he seemed like he was quite frustrated with the board. Um, and he just... I mean, he looks like a... quite agitated most of the time, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, Nuno. I, I don't know. It's, just, it's a straight... They've kind of... Wolves have just muddled along a little bit this year. And I know there's like, the Jimenez thing mm. was massive. And, you know, you, you you add Jimenez's 12, 13, 14 goals that he would have got this year into that. And it's looking completely different. And they go from 12th to maybe 8th. And they're battling for a Europa League spot again. But it just feels like they're a club just waiting for something to happen or something to mm. change. Um, and that could be the that could be the manager but he's quite strong minded and strong willed Nuno uh, so if something did come along you wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if there was a part in other ways yeah. because I'm not sure how quickly they can accelerate their growth I don't, he might outgrow where they are yeah it's an interesting point obviously having finished seventh in consecutive seasons before this one they are languishing down in the lower reaches of mid table Wolves against Burnley lunchtime kickoff Sunday talking of a change of manager Tottenham Hotspur, as we were just mentioning. Sack Jose Mourinho in amongst all the furor, all the carnage of the European Super League proposals. Their next game, a Carabao Cup final. Jose Mourinho was brought in to win them silverware. 
he's got them to a final, uh, but he's not going to get the chance to uh, put, have a medal put round his neck if they do manage to beat <laughs> Manchester City, their opponents at Wembley at the weekend. No Harry Kane for Tottenham Hotspur for the final, Alex. How much do you think their chances of winning the final actually deteriorate through that? Well, do you know, I was... I would have said without thinking, just if we were if we were sat in a pub now and we're a couple of drinks in, I'd be like, ah, Tottenham have got absolutely no chance. Kane yeah. is Tottenham, he, and I think he is their best player by a long way. I think he's a wonderful, wonderful player. I think he's been great for a long time. However, just to, I don't know if this is just the most stupid thing I'm ever going to say, but the way to beat City is on the break. And... With if you've got Sun and you've you've probably got Bale and then if you push Mora further forward, that is that's three very very quick players who will run all day and Tottenham have a chance. Um, also, how bothered are City going to be? I think that's as big a question because I think Guardiola mm-hmm. made a mistake uh, against Chelsea in the semi final. So does he go really strong with this? In which case, I, I can't see anybody winning but City. Or does mm-hmm. he rest two or three of the players with a big game um, coming up against PSG, which I think is probably the more likely. So maybe not as open and shut a City win as it would appear on paper. It's a good job we've got Jack to tell us the answer to that question then, Alex, because uh, he was in <laughs> Pep Guardiola's press conference. I think I read something coming out of that press conference, Jack, and obviously you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong here. That probably not. You know, City's <laughs> City's priorities are Premier League, Champions League, and then this final. I don't think Pep explicitly said that, but he certainly mentioned those two other competitions, the Premier League and the Champions League. What was he like in his press conference, and what kind of vibes did you get? Uh, I'm not expecting you to say what. Manchester City's team will be because Pep never really gives any hints to that sort of thing but are you expecting what Alex suggested there that he might go full strength for this one? Uh, yeah no he definitely won't go full strength um, he was yeah he said that the Premier League's the most important then he said what did he say the Premier League's the most important then qualifying for the Champions League is the most important thing after that and then the Champions League and then the FA Cup and then the Carabao um, and he's basically saying we've got a dream tie with PSG on Wednesday. That's more important, sadly. I'm looking at that already. Um, and also mentioned Crystal Palace next week because he's still petrified that they're going to give the league away, even though they're not. Uh, I my team that I've said we have to do a team every week for the Saturday paper. I've gone with Stefan Cancelo, Diaz, Laporte, Zinchenko, Bernardo Silva, Fernandinho, Gundogan, Mares, Jesus, Sterling. Which is kind of like half of them, just over half yeah. uh, of the team that will play on Wednesday. So it's like he's got a weird, he's got a weird relationship with the Carabao Cup. Pep has because on the surface he takes it far more seriously than everyone else, but he actually, in the earlier rounds, he plays the kids. He's given thirteen, he's given thirteen of the debuts to the academy players that he's given over his five years have been in the Carabao Cup in the opening rounds and he kind of like plays half a team and he uses it to be able to get minutes into players legs that aren't playing every week in the Premier League um, I mean he's obviously in an advantageous position whereby he can pick someone like Benjamin Mendy for a League Cup game and then not playing for two weeks whereas not many other Premier League managers can, have, can do that but I just uh, it's only it's like the quarterfinals onwards maybe just the semi-finals where he like he goes for it but the problem he's got this year is that he could play a full time, full team in in February, or could have done for the previous three finals. Yeah. But 
now. End of April. Mm. And it's, it's difficult, isn't it? So I think they're just going to try and win it with half a team. And yeah. if they don't, he just shrugs his shoulders and goes, well, there's nothing mm. we can do. Yeah, I mean, they, they're, they're going to win at least one trophy this season, aren't they? So, I mean, I think that... Well, Premier League's always the most important thing for them and they have to respond to mm. Liverpool. Mm. Yeah, and no, if they've, absolutely. they've done yeah. that and it's yeah. like anything else is a bonus. But I, mm. but there's part of me that will think back, if I sit down in June and the season's finished and you, they've won one title, you think, ah, is that like a missed opportunity? Yeah. Yeah, mm. so strange, so strange it, how it yeah, works. It is, yeah. uh, actually, also some other news that's been surfacing from a Manchester City perspective comes on the transfer front. Uh, you said on Twitter that a Brazilian wonder kid is going to be landing at the Didn't FDM. say wonder kid, did not say wonder kid. <laughs> I know you didn't, but <laughs> everyone else is saying wonder kid. He's Brazilian and he's 17, so he's got to be a wonder kid because he's on his way to the Premier League. Kaiki the young lad from, is it Fluminense he's come from? There's another one on yeah. the way as well. What can you tell us about that, mate? Uh, not a lot, apart from... <laughs> They've the, signed him. <laughs> yeah, the Brazilian, uh, the guys in Brazil say that he's the new Neymar, but then... They say that about everyone, don't they? Well, they, there's a really good comparison, actually. They signed someone, they signed a lad called Marlos Moreno uh, from, I think he was from Palmeiras, just mm. after they signed Gabriel Jesus, right. about four or five years ago. And the word was when they signed him that he was better than Jesus. He's a Colombian winger. Uh, and they sent him out, loan, out on loan to Girona, who are a City football group uh, club, a sister club of City. He did really badly there. And I, and he's never set foot in the Etihad, inside the Etihad. Wow. But when he arrived, it was like, oh my God, this guy is going to be the next big thing. Mm. So I'm always kind of like quite cautious mm. with these... I mean, I've seen the YouTube clips of him, and he looks absolutely mint. Yeah. But I guess I would on YouTube as well. Him as that guy. The, yeah, they all yeah. do, don't they? <laughs> they all every player. <laughs> it's hard because I think didn't Watford have a young Brazilian lad who was supposed to be the next big thing as well that ended up signing for them, and I can't remember his name for the life of me. Um, but yeah, he he they had one that that they signed and. Know, all the signs are pointing towards him being the next big thing and we haven't really heard too much from him since again I could just be making this up because I can't remember the name of the player but you always get that don't you I mean is it because the, the kind of the disconnect between football in Europe and football in South America you know obviously we're not exposed to that much football from South America particularly in Brazil over here so do you think that there always is that mystique and you know mysteriousness with a player that comes from there I think so yeah I think you're right yeah um Definitely, and people kind of want them to be like exceptional, don't mm. they? And want to be able to scream samba when there's <laughs> someone on or whatever. But like, C- City's scouting in South America is very, very good. They've ploughed quite a lot of resource into being quite all across that continent. Um, and they've got they, they have a club, the CFG have a, have a club in South America, and um, they've they've bought. A lad called Diego uh, Rosa, who's a city midfielder. They bought him in January to like no fanfare whatsoever. He's gone out on loan to another CFG mm. club. Um, there was a right back they bought called Yankuto last last year. He's been in Girona. He's eighteen. Rosa's eighteen. This lad's seventeen. And I think City would probably take the view that if one of them comes off and becomes like mm. a pretty good first team player, they'll be pretty chuffed with that because the others they'll just sell. And that's that's the model. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that's the model. Yeah, and the under-18s and under-23s both going great guns for Manchester City as well. And I think 
their current FA Youth Cup holders as well. So if you're talking about from a development perspective, even though really Foden is the current shining example, there are plenty of young players in the city ranks, um, as well as the ones they're signing, that could potentially be stars of the future. Come on then, who's going to win this cup final? Who's going to be lifting the trophy up those however many steps there are in Wembley, Alex? Mm, I hope Tottenham, so I'm going to say Tottenham. What about you, Jack? City? I think I think Tottenham will win it. Oh, wow. Okay. Double swoop for Tottenham. Wasn't expecting <laughs> that. City against Spurs <laughs> takes place uh, this weekend. Um, looking forward to that one. Thanks very much for joining me, guys. Jack Gorn and Alex Boardman. Really appreciate your time as always. Don't forget you can hit subscribe because Fer- Fergal Brennan and co. will be back with a full rundown of all the weekend's action, including that Carabao Cup final. So make sure you hit subscribe. As I say, that way you'll be notified as soon as the next episode of the podcast is ready. And I'm sure there'll be four more fallout from the European Super League throughout the course of next week as well it feels like a story that certainly isn't going to go away but as for today's preview that's it and we'll catch you next time on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily from Sport Social find us on Facebook search Sport Social